Micah Gilmer. And I'm Mariah M. And this is the Black Future Manifesto. Welcome, welcome, everyone. So here at the Black Future Manifesto, we want to figure out how do we get to liberation as a people? Like how? How's it? And so we're really starting with understanding what's going on in our past, understanding what's happening now, and really imagining a different future for Black folks. Right, and we definitely want to focus on a few things that we know affect Black folks on a systemic level. Totally, and I think our focus is on three things, right? So this idea of racism and white supremacy, like what is this system that's been designed to keep Black people down in this country, but also focusing on capitalism, right? This system of economic exploitation, like, and that's not like a crazy term. That's like what capitalists talk about, right? It's how you make money, you exploit labor. Um, And then like this system of, of patriarchy. I think it's actually really important that we start with that last one, patriarchy. And we have this amazing person. We have Omi Shade Bernie Scott. She is an organizer. She's an artist. She's a proud crone, actually, as well. Practitioner and just a lover of people. We really wanted her on the show. She also serves as director of strategic partnerships for Sister Song, which is a reproductive justice and gender justice organization. Yes, um, by POC women for POC women. In the South. In the South. Right. Really important. Uh, and so I think the conversation that we're going to have with her is really that whole self of who she is, right? Mm-hmm. And on top of all that, she's a, a person who's experiencing this world like the rest of us are. Right. Um, and so the conversation is, I think, very informative. I certainly learned a lot in the conversation. Yeah, it's but also it's, really personal, too. Like, we get to know her as a person, not just who how she shows up in the world for her job, like how she shows up for other people. And there's a couple curse words. Yeah, just, just I mean, a few. <laughs> You've been warned. So without any further ado, uh, here's our conversation with Omi. Yeah, take a listen. How are you, Omi? I'm good. How are y'all doing? Good. good. I'm, feeling, I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm glad to be here. I'm Yay. really excited about this conversation. Or, I'm so excited. Yeah, to have you. this conversation with the two of you and see where it goes. Yes. So, Omi, yes, tell me more just about you, like, people don't know who you are. Yeah, sure. Um, some people think they know who I am because of social media, so mm-hmm. I just want to do kind of like a <laughs> pulling back the veil from the social media yes. avatar. Facts and myths. Facts and myths. <laughs> Fact. Omi is originally from North Carolina, mm-hmm. originally from New Bern. Um, my family's been in eastern North Carolina for about seven generations. My mom was born in Pitt County. My dad was born in Craven County. And we have family in Pamlico. Jones and Lenore so like when I say I'm from East North Carolina like I really really mean that Um, graduated from UNC Chapel Hill go Hills and um, have been living in the Triangle area since then and in Durham for 20 years Um, I have two sons Um, my oldest son Che is 26 and uh, a graduate of Howard University in Washington DC also known as the Mecca Go Bisons. He actually resides in the District of Columbia. You know, there are folks who say they live in D.C. and they, they front. No, he, like, he lives, yeah. no, he lives in Northeast in Brooklyn. Nice. Um, yeah. And then yeah. my youngest son, Taj, um, is nine, going on 400. He will be 10 in October, though, <laughs> physically. Mm-hmm. And um, my full-time gig um, that pays me and makes sure I have health insurance and that part. You know, 401k and stuff like that. I try to take care of myself as Sister Song, Women of Color, Reproductive Justice Collective. And a lot of people think they know who Sister Song is. But I want to be clear about a couple things. Sister Song is the only black-led national repro justice organization that has its offices physically based in the South. Okay. Yeah. Most nice. other repro justice organizations are who are national or mm-hmm. in, like, D.C. or New York or places like that or, or even Cali. And we're based in Atlanta, and we have offices here in Charlotte and in Durham. 
and reproductive justice was started by black women. So I think it's, I would be remiss if I didn't say that because mm -hmm. there are many people who do reproductive health and health and rights and they're like, oh, and we do repro justice too. Like, no, they actually are applying a reproductive justice lens okay. to their work, mm -hmm. but they didn't create it. Okay. But 11 black women created it in 1994. So Here it's like go. really, really important. Let folks know. Let folks know. Okay. Yeah, and then um, I guess the other thing I would say is I'm a tribe member of Spirit House, and I guess we could talk a little bit more about what that means. I was a, f a founding board member of Spirit House when it first mm -hmm. came online. What exactly is Spirit House? Spirit House um, is a black women-led organization that uses cultural organizing to do harm reduction and prison abolition. Mm -hmm. um, and so we do that in a lot of different ways. We use um, the arts and multimedia and social media cultural organizing using spiritual practices that typically come from African traditions or indigenous traditions to kind of really help people claim their voice and have agency around what's happening in their local communities and to critically interrogate the carceral systems and how we can create community-derived alternatives to incarceration or, or jail. And so the harm-free zone is a manifestation of that where we take people through like a 10 to 12 week training to kind of help them understand how systems work in their local community mm -hmm. um, and then get them involved in the process of influencing that, right? I'm also on the board of Village of Wisdom and the Beautiful Project in Working Films. Wonderful. Wow, wow, wow. Black futures, right? Black. All of them. Right. Blackity black. Blackity black. black. <laughs> I'm also a sustainer of black space and yes. black August in the park. Blackity black. Oh, blackity and Earthseed. Blackity black. Yes. No, like I don't give money. Like I'm a sustainer. I'm like, just take money every like every month. <laughs> right. Because if you ask me like once a year, I'm like, yeah, yeah. Oh, snap. So mm -hmm. I am explicitly a sustainer of three black organizations. I feel like it's really important. That's awesome. Because that's sustainable. Yes. Right. right. <laughs> money, you know, money for the movement, though. That's a. That's I mean, money. you got $5 for some coffee, you got $5 sustained black space. Right. right. I'm just saying. Yeah. Get your matcha and build a black future. That's you know? it. So I wanted to dig in a little bit into the work that you're doing with Sister Song sure. right now. Y'all are just doing such amazing work, and it's getting a lot of visibility and publicity but like you said a lot of people think they know what it is yeah but can you talk about how that work connects to this broader like system that we're working in around gender yeah. and violence and absolutely so real important thing is that reproductive justice is not only about choice it's about access right and so a lot of people will kind of reduce it down to oh you're talking about pro-choice and people having access to abortions like yeah and what we're really talking about is an individual, in particular women of color, having the ability to make a decision around if they want to have children and under what conditions they have children. Mm -hmm. And if they don't want to have children, having the ability to terminate a pregnancy or prevent themselves from getting pregnant. And if they do have children, that they can take care of their children and parent their children with dignity. And you can't do that if you live in an environment, whether it's inside your home or outside your home that is violent or unsafe. And so that's why a lot of people see the connective tissue between reproductive justice and domestic violence, prison abolition, economic justice, housing, school to prison pipeline, because all of these things disrupt families' abilities to take care of themselves. And so we came online, Sister Song is 20 years old, but we came online in North Carolina a little less than two years ago, building relationships, doing trainings, really grounding folk in what is reproductive justice, what is Sister Song, 
we have two national campaigns. We have the Trust Black Women campaign, which people think is a hashtag, and it's not. Um, but people have grabbed hold of that, and that's one of the beautiful things about black folk. Like, if, mm-hmm. look, if it look good and smell good, we're going to grab hold of it and be like, you need to get you some Trust Black Women. Yes. And it's true. Mm-hmm. You should. Right. And you should also know that Trust Black Women was a campaign that was explicitly started by black women who work in reproductive justice organizations because of the billboards that had gone up to say the most dangerous place for a black child is inside of a black woman's body, mm-hmm. either because she was going to abort the child or because she wouldn't be able to take care of the child. So there's all these ways in which they were like, black women don't know what they're doing with their bodies. Mm-hmm. And we were like, that's not true. And we also um, anchor the Black Mamas Matter Alliance, which is doing all this national work around maternal, maternal mortality rates for black women, which you know are three times more of that of a white woman. You can have a white woman with a high school diploma and a black woman with a PhD, and she's more likely to die postpartum than the white woman is. And so we were like, hmm, that's, why? Why does that keep happening? So our specific work in North Carolina last year started moving towards work that was happening around making sure that folk who are incarcerated or justice involved also have reproductive justice rights, and that looked like shackling. So we started this anti-shackling campaign with an idea in December, and then in January, the rubber met the road because we got a call from a hospital in the Triangle area and said, look, there were two people who were transported to our facility from the women's prison, and they were shackled. And when we asked the correctional officer to take the shackles off, they said no. Real quick, because I feel like people really don't understand what shackling means and like what that exactly is. So just clear it up for for the folks. So shackling typically means that a person, um, I'll use an example of a person who's pregnant. She would be handcuffed at the wrist. There would be a chain around her belly, and she would be handcuffed at the ankle. And she would be transported in a van to her prenatal care visits, unless the facility had the ability to do those prenatal care visits in-house, which they typically don't. Mm-hmm. 100% of births in the carceral system in North Carolina are induced. Wow. You do not go into labor naturally. They are induced. So whatever your gestational period is, they're like, oh, this close to March 15th, then March 15th, we're sending you over to Wake Med, or we're sending you over to UNC hospitals, and we're and we're inducing on schedule. On right. schedule, right, right. And so, what we wanted to do was one, wanted to make sure people knew this was happening. Two, to help people kind of understand at a at a meta level what carceral systems are. So it's not just prisons; it's also hospitals and schools and jails and mental mm-hmm. health facilities. There are like a lot of systems that are about domination and control. Mm-hmm. At its core, that's what carceral systems are, right? Mm-hmm. And we also wanted to make sure that folk knew that these are people, these are human beings, right? Who are in the midst of giving birth to a child, were being shackled to the bed like an animal, Hmm. right? Yeah. So that's what our work has been. We did get a little policy win where the Department of Public Safety said that they would no longer shackle during labor. And that they also would allow the person who just gave birth to bond with the baby, but they didn't say how long. And we just find that insufficient, right? Like, like, I don't think you should be shackled, period. We don't think prison should exist. But also, Mm -hmm. the fact of the matter is, is like, because they still exist and there's still people in cages, there's work for us to do to make sure that the folk who are still in cages are not being treated like animals and have human rights, right? And Mm -hmm. so um, we wanted to make sure that folk are not shackled um, prenatal, during labor, during labor and delivery, postpartum out to eight weeks, while they're breastfeeding or lactating, like just 
just don't do it. It's not, it's not necessary. It's inhumane. And so that's the work we've been doing. We did have some legislation introduced during the short session that we didn't anticipate, Mm -hmm. but because it was also the short session and they were really focused on the budget, it died in committee. So we're hopeful that it'll get picked back up in 2019. And so right now we're focused on storytelling. You know, we really wanted to connect with people who either had very personal firsthand experience of being shackled while they were pregnant or while they gave birth in North Carolina, and we also wanted to talk to people about their experiences with incarceration, and particularly connecting with cisgendered or trans or femmes around what their experiences are. And so we're in the process of story collection. We're working with Angel Dozier mm-hmm. with Be Connected Durham, and she <coughs> is leading our amazing group of documentarians to help us collect stories and collect stories in a participatory way, so that way the people who are willing to tell their stories, have ownership of the story, and at any given point they can say to us, hey, this song, you know what, I don't want you to tell my story anymore. And we're like, okay, cool, because that's your story. Right. And yeah. so we're trying to, even our approach to the storytelling is, is is different. Yeah. So there's like this real key instance that folks have really grabbed onto as this way that illustrates how all these systems overlap. So yeah. you have the system of mass incarceration which impacts all people, but it impacts women differently in, mm-hmm. in this particular way in terms of how mm-hmm. their bodies are controlled. Can you talk about how you see just the different intersections of identity that folks are experiencing and how mm-hmm. um, we need to really untangle those things to be mm-hmm. able to understand what's happening? Yeah. If we go back to the example of, of women who are being incarcerated or uh, being detained in, in jail, yeah, think about it like this. Over 60, 70% of women who find themselves justice-involved or incarcerated find themselves in that situation because they have experienced some kind of violence or abuse as a child, or they've experienced intimate partner violence. So folk are coming out of violent situations into a more violent situation. It's typically because of a drug charge or has to do with money, you know, whether they've been stealing something or whatever, you know, because they want to take care of their family, or they have a drug addiction and they're trying to figure out how to get their fix. And so what we find is that most women who find themselves or femmes who find themselves or trans folk who find themselves incarcerated are coming out of one violent situation into another violent situation. And because our prison system was based on a slave system, right? So you went from chattel slavery to this mass incarceration, labor situation. It was not made for, it was made primarily for men. And then when they started incarcerating women, they were like, oh, snap, we got to figure out what we're going to do with the women, too. So there's no ideal situation as far as mass incarceration is concerned. It was birthed out of a system based on violence and oppression and control, and it continues to be. Um, And so how people are showing up with their identities and their trauma and their experiences is not being seen and also not being supported or taken care of. And so I think it's really important for folks to be really clear about that. If a person shows up who's trans and poor and has experienced violence and they're going into this carceral system, it's, it's just not a good, it's not good. Right. I mean, and that's the that's the messed up thing about patriarchy, right? Yeah. It's like women are always the afterthought. Yeah. It's it's you're you're they're disenfranchised first and foremost, but still an afterthought. Yeah, they're like, whoops, oh snap, where are we gonna put them? We mm-hmm. should probably build some cages for them too. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, wow. Yeah. And then you have the like the prison system also is this gender binary, right? Like yeah. literally there's a men's prison and, and a, a women's, women's prison, prison right? Exactly. So that if you're a trans woman 
you go into the men's prison, there's not a a system or a way to... And it's not safe. Yeah. And it's also not safe for... It's not safe for queer people anywhere. And it's certainly not safe for QT people within the walls of a prison. And we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what people are experiencing in ICE detention centers because... The privatization of prisons, all ICE detention centers, my understanding, are all privately mm-hmm. owned. And we just got word from our partners at El Pueblo that I think at least five women reported that they had miscarriages because they were shackled while they were pregnant in ICE detention centers over the last wow. several months. And that's that's also a part of our work, which is why we partner with so many people because we really want to make sure that the work we're doing is connected in a legitimate way with folk who are doing really powerful advocacy and policy change and grassroots organizing work so mm. but yeah patriarchy is a is a it's a monster that gets us all mm-hmm. you know it's, it, we are none of us are free from it um, none of us have not been impacted we all are impacted like every single one of us and right. so sometimes it feels like a false argument or a false conversation people are like so what should people do who've never experienced patriarchy? It's like, I don't know anyone who hasn't experienced. People, are there people on Mars? I didn't <laughs> <know>. <laughs> Not yet. We're striving to get there. You know, like, mm. yeah. it's like people say, I don't know anything about racism. You're like, yeah, that that's not true either. Right. Right. You know, only about racism. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that the prison system is like this big thing and it's important for us to all recognize it and make it visible because mm. it's not in our everyday life. But you have also done work that really touches on people's behavior and how they consume yeah. things like music, yeah. things like clothes. Can you just talk about like how that yeah. work is important and how it connects? Absolutely. I love that we d- use uh, cultural organizing as well as a part of Sister Song's work. And so we were really trying to interrogate respectability politics and how that is an anchor for reproductive oppression and coercion. And so we created a, a training called Coretta to Cardi B, where we wanted to play off of this kind of cult of personality of Coretta Scott King as she's attached to her husband. Like, who was mm-hmm. she? If you, dis- if you disassociated her from Martin, what, would, what could you tell me about Coretta? And oftentimes folks like, I got nothing. Right. And so that bears proof in terms of like her identity is only validated or visible through her husband. Right. And then Cardi B, on the other hand, Cardi B, on the (laughs) other hand, this idea of people thinking they know who she is based on reality TV when it's, it's reality TV. Right. And so all of the tropes around, well, she must be this because she did this. Right. So she must be a person of ill character or she must lack integrity she must not be intelligent she must be a bad person Mm -hmm. because she has made decisions around how she wants to live her life and what she wants to do with her life and people it wasn't always legible to folk and so people like yeah you used to be a dancer she was like yeah you know like that means like what does that mean right what does that mean? And so I think what we're trying to get people to do is like not deify or demonize anyone, that we all have humanness that we walk with that can be incredibly messy. And some of us are afforded the opportunity to have our messiness pushed into a closet and locked. And so folks don't have access to that. But with social media, people don't even have an opportunity to kind of self-correct any of their messiness before someone takes a screenshot and sends it to everyone. And it's like, oh, you thought you was going to get away from that messiness, but I got the screenshot and now I'm going to send it and black Twitter is about to let you have it. Right. right? And mm-hmm. I think that that's an interesting phenomenon. And I don't I sometimes that worries me because 
the call-out culture doesn't allow for one-on-one conversation with individuals to say, I think you misgendered this person, or I think that the way that you were communicating with me was really problematic and queerphobic. We don't get to do that. It's like, this is what you said, I'm going to snatch it, and I'm going to put you on blast, right? And this also putting people on blast who you don't really have relationships with. So Mm -hmm. we don't have a personal relationship with Coretta Scott King, or we didn't have a personal relationship with her. Mm -hmm. Um, And we don't have a personal relationship with Cardi B. So for us to be able to determine their character based on what we've been spoon-fed by the media is disingenuous, and it also reinforces patriarchy and misogyny and reinforces reproductive coercion and oppression, too. So mm. it's always that that way where we remind folk that there's more to you than meets the eye, and if someone were to encounter you on your worst day and take a screenshot and share it on social media, is that all of who you are, right? right? And if someone saw you on your best day mm-hmm. and did the same thing, is that all of who you are? And it's not. It's just so much nuance. There's no binary. Right. You know? I feel like, especially just in our current culture, we as black people aren't allowed to be multifaceted yeah. or allowed to have, like, split attention. Yeah. Like, you always hear in the media, it's just, oh, you're, you're marching for women's rights. Why don't you march for people getting shot in your own community? It's just like, I can do both of I those can, things. Yes, I can. I did. I did. Right. Yeah. <laughs> As a matter of fact, where were you last week? Yeah, we had that happen with us with the um, you are Kelly thing. It was like, so what's going to happen after the concert? And we're going to go back to doing the same social justice work we've been doing. What you going to do, right. Mr. Reporter Man? Right. You know, and I do think that's right. I think the, the idea that we are only one thing, that we can only focus on one issue, or that we're not always evolving and growing. And I think that's, for me, at 51, like literally next year, it would be 25 years I've been working in like the nonprofit industrial complex and doing my thing to try to like impart mm, social change. Just thanks, why you said that though. I'm just trying to impart social change <laughs> and yeah. I just want to. Doing I, paid and unpaid emotional labor. Right. And, yeah, right. Trying to like keep a roof over my head and feed my kids. Right. right. And I think that I still have so much to learn. Still. Every single day. And it doesn't serve me to show up in spaces poking holes in new things that I don't understand because mm-hmm. I really don't understand it. Now, if I have an opportunity to sit with it, and experience it and then be like, hmm, that doesn't work for me. That's different. Then I can say, no, I have some experience with that. I don't, I agree with this aspect or no, it did, I couldn't apply that for myself and it didn't work for me. But if it works for you, you know, have at it mm-hmm. as opposed to immediately jumping to interrogate someone and be like, that's terrible. This is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. That makes no sense. That's not my experience. It's like, well, you haven't even like sat with that for a second. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. It goes back to this idea of identity, right? Face value, I present as a cis-hetero black woman. Mm -hmm. I am a cis-hetero black woman. That's not all of who I am. Mm -hmm. And I don't suspect that it's all of who I will be before I take my last breath. Mm -hmm. And so if you're trying to experience all of who I am, patriarchy tells you no, right? Patriarchy is like, you're one thing, and that's the one thing that you get to do, but you only get to do that because I give you permission to do it. As a man. Right? And so patriarchy, we had talked previously about patriarchy being not only it's a practice, but it's, it's also a mindset, right? And so there are people who are actively in the practice of patriarchy like that they wake up thinking about stuff they're going to do like some of our lawmakers right Mm -hmm. wake up thinking about how can i control this person's body how can i control this person's decisions their access 
how do I control these things? And then there are people who are like not even clear that they have this mindset, but it shows up in the ways we raise our, our, our children, you know, mm-hmm. things we say to our sons, boys don't cry. Stop acting like a girl. Mm. Stop acting like a pussy. And I'm like, first off, I want to be clear that a pussy can push another human being out. Right. Yeah. You might want to act like one because it's the most amazing thing you have ever, ever took a gander of. And if you've ever seen somebody give birth to another human being, you're like, I I stand corrected. It's very tough. It's it's, it's built built for it tough. So like, I just just need for, you know, so when you think about that, so there's mindsets that, we just take as we normalize. We just yeah. take them for granted. We don't even think there's anything wrong with the mindset, mm-hmm. unless someone says, "Why did Why did you say that?" Mm-hmm. And that's what happened for me. I think some twenty odd years ago, when I would say things, and I was encountering my teachers, and I say that with so much love, teachers who were younger than me, teachers who were older than me, who would say, "Omi, why did you say that?" or "Omi, why did you use that language?" I'm like, "What language should I use? Teach me, help me, mm-hmm. right? Because that's not who I want to be mm-hmm. in the world." And that translates to how I raise my sons as well in terms of thinking about not taking what you see at face value Mm -hmm. and also interrogating your own personal responsibility in certain situations to self-correct when you've made a mistake. Right. I want to take maybe a few steps back, but just talking more about just because you're not the one oppressed by patriarchy doesn't mean you're not negatively affected by it. Right. But also, I remember you telling me about an experience you had around the new R. Kelly movement. Mm -hmm. Number one, just... I guess, again, for folks who are not aware. Yeah, I feel like I saw that on Instagram. I'm just like, yes, F him, but also. Yeah, Um, so there are two women, Kenyette and Oranike, who live in Atlanta, Georgia, who started Mm -hmm. the Mute R. Kelly movement. Mm -hmm. And they started it because they were like, I don't understand why we as black folk, we as black women, we as black femmes consistently give money to a person who is a sexual predator and who's abusive and violent towards black women. Exclusively. Right. And so Mm -hmm. let's not do that. And let's not only not do that, let's call him out. The more money he has, the more he's able to avert justice, avert accountability, responsibility. And so they started this movement well over a year ago. And then he was going to be coming to Greensboro. And Kenyette reached out and was like, Omi, was Sister Song throw down with us? And we were like, yeah. And then we reached out to Black Lives Matter in Greensboro and the YWCA and some other groups. And we were like, would you guys be willing to throw down with us? And they were like, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So we showed up at the concert. Well, we did several press junket kind of situations. And then we showed up at the concert. And there were probably about 40 of us there. And the the most vocal folk in responding back to us while we were standing with signage were other black women. Mm-hmm. And they were like, I got my ticket, you just mad because you can't go to the concert, or you just mad because he wouldn't want you. Mm. And that made me sad because I was like, I'm actually out here for you, sis. I'm Mm. out here for me, but I'm also out here for you, right? And honestly, we're both too old for him, right? (laughs) Like, I'm out here for your daughter, right? right? Like, real talk. Like, I'm 51. He's not checking for me. But my little cousin who's, like, 18 or 20, that's his, that's his stilo. That's mm. his jam. Yeah. And so how do we bring that to light? And we like, why would you put more energy into supporting and purchasing a ticket from this person as opposed to wanting to protect mm-hmm. our families, mm-hmm. right? And so that's a way that I think patriarchy is a mindset, but not a practice. It's like mm-hmm. a mindset of thinking, well, what, would, what were those girls doing? Mm-hmm. Why were they with him? What really happened? What were they wearing? What were they wearing? Mm-hmm. Were, they, were they high? You know, well, 
I didn't hear a whole lot of other people complaining. It's like all of the things that we do when we hold the person who has been abused responsible for what happened to them. And that has been a consistent experience of black women and femmes in this country that we are consistently held responsible for anything that happens to us. Like the sister who actually got time, got some time in Alabama, mm-hmm. who was thrown on the ground by the police officer at the Waffle House. They found her guilty. The, mm, I did wow. see that. Wow. wow. For re- resisting arrest and I guess some other pieces. And I was like, he body slammed her, fondled her, exposed her breast, and she was found guilty. Mm-hmm. And folk were like, well, what did she do? Or why didn't she? I'm like, I didn't. so this is the whole <laughs> thing around how we've all been impacted by patriarchy and the necessity to take a moment, take a moment to be like, why am I saying that? Mm-hmm. Where did I get that from? Who normalized that? Is this something I want to carry forth for the rest of my life? There's so many things I have been unlearning in the last 20 years. And it's not, I, I don't lay that all at the feet of my parents. I lay, I recognize that there are things I was taught from my family, from my parents, from my cousins, from my friends, from my environment, from my college setting, from media, from books. So I, I'm not finger pointing and being like, this person jacked me up because they taught me this or they normalized it. We are swimming in toxic soup, right? And so it's hard sometimes to like step back from the reality of like this proliferation of information to be like, do I believe this? And if I don't believe this, how do I start to unlearn it and create something that I think is healthier for me and my family? What are some ways you've had to do that? Like what are some things that you've had to do as a mother Mm. or just as a person that's, that's navigating these things? What are things you've had to unlearn or do differently than you've seen done? I think my parenting, my unlearning around parenting has been a big deal. Mm. When I had Che, I was 25, and I used to definitely spank Che a lot. Um, I used to also cuss at Che a lot. Um, And he and I have had several conversations around that. I was also in what I would feel like was the burgeoning of my consciousness, so I was also kind of quasi-hotepish, fake-ass vegetarian <laughs> i've been one of those yeah yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. we all go we all go it didn't work mm-hmm. shane won't eat couscous to this day oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. yeah. but in retrospect when he started his freshman year at howard i was reflecting on that because for i was a single parent for a long time and i was like bruh i'm sorry and he was like what i was like i'm sorry i and you know I think that there were ways that I spoke to you to have control and power that were not necessary, mm-hmm. right? And there were, there were things I would do to try to control you, to put fear in you, to make you do what I wanted you to do. And so I would spank, I would hit. And I remember before my mother passed away, she wrote me a letter, and this letter still sits on my ancestor shrine. And she was like, use your words, don't hit. You don't mm-hmm. have to hit. You don't. And I was like, interesting, because she spanked me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? Mm-hmm. With Taj, I don't do any of those things. Like, I don't, I don't, I curse because I like cursing. It's like salsa. It adds <laughs> flavor to a meal. Yeah. I cannot. But um, I don't curse at him. Mm-hmm. Like, I've never cursed at him, and he's never had a spanking. He's been punished mm-hmm. when he's done something he had no business doing. He's been corrected. He's been disciplined but not by way of me cursing or hitting him. And I think when we think about the ways that carceral systems show up in our families, 
that domination and control, mm-hmm. that's that's based on patriarchy. And so for me, patriarchy as a single mom meant that I had to flex. I had to be even, I had to be like super duper mm-hmm. single mom. You know, if people saw me out in the street, my kid was in check, you know, and if they told me he did something, I would like cuss him out in front of those folks. What the, da, 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 da. you know, like mm-hmm. that was a whole lot of performative, mm-hmm. this is what I need to do so people wouldn't judge me for being a single mom. And now here I am, you know, Mike and I are divorced and I'm a single mom again. And it's a different kind of feeling for me around like my focus is really raising a, a, a spectacular human being, you know. And I think not for nothing with Che, similarly, he had aunties and uncles the same way that Taj does who provided additional support and love. And I think that he knows how much I love him, loved him and love him. And I also realized that some of my parenting was just coming from a place that was just based on fear and was not the best I think I could have done. He thinks I did fine. And we have a spectacular relationship. He's a very kind, intelligent, gracious, compassionate man. And I see how that shows up in his relationships with his friends and with his girlfriend. And I think Taj is also that kind of kid. Like he's very empathic and compassionate. And so I want I don't want him to think that, that doing that means he's not a man. So yeah. I had shared with Mariah that when we were talking about um, Williams, our, or one of Taj's friends that passed away at the end of the school year. And I was asking Taj, I said, do you know how he's doing? And he said, I think he's okay. And I was like, do you know? And he was like, no. I was like, well, have you asked him? He was like, no, but I think he's okay. I said, well, you're making an assumption that he's okay. What we're going to do is we're actually going to, we're going to reach out. You're going to ask him, how are you doing? Do you need anything? How, how can I show up for you as your friend? Right? I said, and that's emotional labor. I said, we don't teach our children how to do emotional labor. And we most certainly don't teach our boys. I think girls interpret emotional labor by what they see. Sometimes they're told how they're supposed to normalize their relationships with friends or lovers or whatever. But I think more often than not, what girls see or what them see is what their mother has done or what their sisters or their aunties. And they're like, oh, well, that's how I'm supposed to show up. That's what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Whereas with boys, there's no explicit nothing. And so I was like, I'm not interested in raising two human beings who don't know how to do emotional labor with their friends, which to me is a way that disrupts patriarchy, where you're willing to do emotional labor with the folk that you say you care about. Right. I really held on to what you said about domination and control Mm -hmm. in terms of patriarchy and internalized mindsets that we've adopted, how literally, like you said, we behave based on what we know and what we've seen. And so, I, I don't know, I just I just can imagine people hearing this podcast. It's like, you don't spank your children. How do you get your kids to respect you? How yeah. do you know? Like, that's a worry. Children are to be seen and not heard. They're to be, um, you know, kids are not your friends and, you know, all of these things. Right. But I do think it stems from <laughs> patriarchy because guess who wanted control over women and over black people, yeah. you know? Like, yeah. who are those Who were those people and who are those people now? I will hear people say that not spanking Taj is like white people stuff. Mm. And and so I want to be real clear about something. Like, because I don't spank him doesn't mean that he doesn't get disciplined. Mm-hmm. I, dis- I have, we have decided, 
um, me and Michael have decided that the way that we discipline him, even more importantly, the way we hold him accountable, like accountability and giving him the opportunity to think critically around what happened and what he can control to that in that situation to correct that doesn't require me hitting him. It really doesn't because that's all he's ever known from the time he could actually communicate and articulate. We would say, you're not supposed to do that, are you? And he's like, no. Then why did you do that? Did you forget? I did. So what can we do to make sure you don't forget again? As opposed to being like, yo, what the F you doing? Da, 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 da. Pop, pop, pop. Mm. Then he's just like freaked out. Shut down. Shut yeah. down. Right. And it's just not, I mean, it works to a degree, but it also like then reinforces like if I want some, if I want to control a situation, I got to pop off. Mm-hmm. Right? And it, I think it just points to the, just the, how big the challenge is for us in mm-hmm. that to really get free, we need to be parenting for, in this case, right, without fear, mm-hmm. right? And in a way that, because it's not just about not hitting, it's not, you know, there's a lot of like those white parents that don't hit, so a lot of them do emotional manipulation yes. and all those tactics, right? And we have the most to fear as people, right, because of who we are in this society. And so it's just such a huge challenge to try, and as a parent as, as well, of two boys as well, to try to, yeah. to be a parent that's not fearful and is not yeah. driven by fear. Yeah, I think it's important. Because I think that, um, White supremacy, patriarchy, and misogyny are fueled by fear, right? It reinforces it and makes you double down in it. Either double down in it because you're, you're fearful of losing your, your power or your control in a situation, or you're fearful of the other. Like, what does this mean for me? Does, if, I, if I do this or make myself accessible to this, then all of who I am will be erased and I won't matter anymore. And so I think there's a lot of fear that drives all of this. You know, the fear that black and brown folk are the majority. And so if that's the case, then what are you going to do? You're going to put legislation and laws in place to try to keep folk isolated and in confused situations and really struggling because you know that you're outnumbered. You know that you are. And I just think that if we don't address that in that way, then we're, we're... we're missing a lot of the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm also just thinking about how patriarchy shows up in like all types of interpersonal relationships, mm-hmm. you know? I was having a conversation with a few friends of mine, a few cis men friends of mine, about just that in terms of how men feel like they need to act like for a woman or be a certain thing for a woman like do the socialization like mm-hmm. bump what the woman actually wants mm-hmm. like what is what have men been conditioned to believe they need to be mm-hmm. for other people like thanks thanks to patriarchy mm-hmm. and those things included like feeling insecure if your partner makes more money than you yeah it's also a size thing like mm. you know the the whole trope of you remember the the magazine cover with lebron holding the white woman mm. trying you know when they copy king like you know those things like literally just the size of like your partner like feeling self-conscious about that mm-hmm. and again i think it it goes back to patriarchy wasn't designed to disenfranchise white men mm-hmm. but look at the ways it still affects mm-hmm. black folk in this way mm-hmm. and you in particular even though you still benefit from this system in some way. You mm-hmm, know? Mm-hmm. We've been talking quite a bit about the way that the white gaze or the male gaze is supposed to validate, legitimize, or make you more valuable, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, if you find yourself wanting in the midst of the white gaze or the, or the male gaze, then you're no one. You're, you're rendered invisible or you're subject to erasure. I had actually 
posted a question. I was like, I'm really toying with this idea of how I can have credibility and be valuable outside of the white gaze and the male gaze, right? Mm -hmm. And so that is my way of saying, I want to feel my value and my credibility from the inside out and not because what is put on me by what people see, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we were, <laughs> we were talking about how in the 80s, brown-skinned black girls living in Prince George's County, Maryland were not cute. We were not a thing. Oh, no, not a thing. Not even not not a thing for the boys who are in our age group, but also for friendships. Hmm. Um, that if you were too brown, sometimes you would not even be be able to be friends with someone who was lighter than you. Their parents were like, "Who's bringing this little black girl here?" Wow. And we're like, "We're all black," but that thing was yeah. a real thing. And so it is the way in which whomever is looking at you puts value on you or demonizes you or dehumanizes you, right? Mm -hmm. Like I, we definitely are sure that the, the white gaze dehumanizes black folk. You don't feel pain, you're not important, you're an animal, you don't love your children, you don't care about your community, that's what the white gaze tells us, right? Mm -hmm. When we're interrogating or thinking about the male gaze within our own community, and it's been normalized around relationships and things like that. I think it's important to have that conversation. I remember saying to Che that I wanted him to, my wish for him was to be in a relationship with someone who he felt like had his back emotionally as much as he had her back. Like, mm -hmm. the, I wanted there to be reciprocity for him so that he felt like in any moment, he, if he needed to lean back on her, that she wouldn't crumple under it because she wasn't expecting him to lean on her. I'm like, I think you should be able to lean on each other. He's ingested a lot of the patriarchy as well, though I think he does a better job than most of trying to, like, spit it out or, you know, interrogate it, because that's the work he's been doing is, you know, like, why do we do this? Why do we have toxic notions of masculinity? That's his day-to-day -day work, mm -hmm. is exploring why do we have toxic notions of masculinity? Where did it come from? How can we unlearn it? How can we undo it, mm -hmm. right? And it still shows up in your home. Yeah. You know, so you, it's, it, it is a daily practice, I think. I love that piece about the gaze, though, because I think it's so important. Like, I think when I was a kid, I was like, I don't care what anybody thinks, but you always do. You do. Because you're a human <laughs> being and we're social animals. Mm -hmm. and like, But you, you can control who your tribe is, mm -hmm. right? And you can control whose opinion you value. Yeah. And so I think that, like, that curation of the tribe and that cultivation of it, that I don't care about what, you know, some dude on the street or what yeah. this, you know, white respectability guy thinks or whatever is important, yeah. right? So that we can hold our center with those that really share our values. It takes time, too. Because sometimes you don't even know that you were leaning into that gaze until mm. you get to a certain place and you're like, well, where did that come from? You're like, huh, where did that come from? <laughs> Damn. Let me, let me, let me try to get this spot out. You know, right. and then you start working on it. And I, I also am not interested in judging any of the iterations of me, right? So whether that's my 15-year-old self or 30-year-old self or 51-year-old self. I'm not interested in shaming or judging her for what she didn't know or putting into place, I feel like, maybe immature or rudimentary practices to try to keep me safe. I'm not interested in doing that. I am interested in letting her know that it's okay and that as I move forward, fully more forward into this second part of a half century, it's like hopefully my uptime, like how quickly I grab it, will be quicker than it was in the past. It'll be like, oh, I'm doing that thing that I learned how to do when I was 15. Because mm -hmm. I learned how to weaponize my sex when I was 18 because I was in an emotionally abusive relationship with someone who was very much about domination and control. And so I've been in a process of really exploring that over the last two, three years. 
so many years later around like, well, where did I learn that? I learned that from him. And I had so much shame around the abuse that I really didn't talk about it outside of like a, a small group of people. So you're never hopefully at a point where you can't reach back if you can to be like, this is probably the root of this. And let's let's take some time to, to work on it. Yeah. I'm going to put Micah on the spot. Micah. Nice. Uh, what are what do you think is like the hardest part of patriarchy that you found like mm. in your life that you've had to be like interrogating that and figuring out how to not live that anymore? Yeah, I think I would agree that it's definitely a work in progress and I'm <laughs> I'm uncovering like, oh that's patriarchal as hell. When I think about <laughs> that, like, oh my god. Um and then and then there's like there's there's habits, but there's also and, and ha- like ways of thinking, but there's also just reflexes, right? Mm. Like it's you know it's like trust your instincts, but yeah, but also your instincts were conditioned by patriarchy and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I remember when I had my my son Max, who's five now, and I would just I would just hold him, and every time I'd hold him, I'd want to kiss him, and I'd be like, I'm kissing him too much. Like oh, I'm just I'm wow. just giving him like I've kissed him like ten times already. That's just too many kisses. And mm. I remember just thinking like, I'm not gonna ration how much affection I give my son. <laughs> right. Right. Like and like and that was like a moment for my for for me that was like oh yeah. And I and I, I grew up with a dad. Like people talk about, like I never saw my dad cry. I was like my dad was a preacher, and he cried every time he preached. Mm-hmm. Like that was like his. Like some people hoop and holler. Like mm-hmm. he cried. That was mm-hmm. his move. Like so he did every <laughs> every week. That was a jam. That was a jam. <laughs> jam. Like the little Denzel single tear. Sometimes a little weeping. Like it was great. It was yeah. great. But 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 even with that, like and with a father who I think was really different and tried to be, and certainly was like way more expressive with me than his dad was. Yeah, it's just so much stuff that you internalize that, like, that that I'm having to always unlearn as mm-hmm. I'm trying to be a father to sons. Mm. Just to, that, yeah, just what it means to be loving and what it means to... And then I think the fear thing is so real, too, because mm. I'm, just, I'm just so afraid of, like, them being exploited or taken advantage of or hurt or, or whatever. And mm. so just, like having to always like breathe that fear out and then what if I wasn't afraid what would I what would I do mm-hmm. right um, mm-hmm. and I was gonna ask you Omi like as we're as we're wrapping up what is like this is a podcast for black folks other folks are welcome to listen welcome other folks <laughs> um, but for black folks like what what would you want them to know about who they are yeah I guess the first thing I would want black folk to know is that you are absolutely amazing as a human being and that um, you get to choose every day how you want to show up and what you want to learn about yourself. And you can be selfish with that. Like, I think that black folk, we tend to feel like all of our good works are external, right? Mm. Whether that's our good works because it comes from a Judeo-Christian, Southern Judeo-Christian tradition or a Southern tradition or a black tradition. Like, the way my good works show up is I take care of other people, right? Mm. Whether that's community organizing or faith tradition or culture work or whatever. I want black folk to know that your good works can start with you. Like you can really spend some time with yourself and that's not woo woo. Like somebody was saying, oh, if I got no time for no woo woo stuff. I'm like, yeah, but for real, we're dying. Hmm. Like I have been very forthright and out with my journey around depression and anxiety. And I know that within our movement, folk who are doing social justice or black liberation, that we've lost a lot of people to mental health. And they figured out ways to stay alive by self-medicating in ways that are so toxic that people don't want to be around them or they don't, they took their own lives. Yeah. It's real. And so I think that's the first thing I would want people to know. It's like, you know, you're, you're actually like this miraculous, amazing human that you can like change. You can shape shift. Yeah. You can, you can make that happen for yourself if you actually will look at yourself 
And this is about love and, and not love in a romantic sense, but like this really, really big divine love is that I think that we can be more loving towards ourselves and each other in ways that is radical that we haven't ever experienced before. And that might look like you engaging in some radical honesty with people that you really care about, about what you need or what you want or how you want to show up. I think that I want black folk to know that we can love each other in ways that transcends this notion of like, oh, no homo. Like I hate, that's one of my, I hate that when someone's like, yo, I love you, man, no homo. You know what? I just, just say you love somebody. Hmm. And if you love somebody, show up for that person. And if you love yourself, show up for yourself. This this whole thing around, what's the guy's name who's the, the baseball player? Akuna? Do you know this guy? Apparently, there was a a, um, a guy and his his um, teammate, and oh, they were sharing yeah. a real sweet moment. And the guy was like rubbing his back and rubbing his hair, and everybody was like, "Yo, they gay." I'm like, "So?" <laughs> well, and then folk were like, "No, no, they're not gay. His mom died." And folk were like, "Oh, well, in that case, it's okay." And I was like, right. "You know what? In either case, it's okay. Yeah. Like, if he's gay, he's gay. If he's not gay, and his mama died, and his friend was showing care, that's good too." We have enough love, black folk, that transcends this notion of how this love can show up and manifest. And if we would stop trying to put love in boxes, to be like, that's the right way to show love. That way right there? Mm -mm, I don't mess with that. We are limiting ourselves, in, in, and I think that that's the thing that keeps us from being fully healed, is that we are limiting our way that we look at what radical love can look like for black folk. I'm just, I'm trying to like synopse or, you know, our conversation. <laughs> mm -hmm. And what's coming to my head is that patriarchy is stifling. Yeah, It's stifling and we as black people, again, try ways to live within the system without feeling as stifled. So mm -hmm. for black men, that looks like maybe stepping on other black women. For black women, that may look like stepping on other black women. Mm -hmm. It also may look like, again, what can I grasp to feel like I'm not as stifled? And mm -hmm. that's control. Mm -hmm. And that's manipulation, emotional manipulation. People listening to this, what's in your daily life do you realize is for the sake of control of somebody else, yeah. is for the sake of like power over somebody mm -hmm. else. Do, do you mean to instill fear in people? Mm -hmm. Like, is that is that part of like what you wanted, like how you want to show up for people? Do mm -hmm. you, would you rather be feared or controlled? Like that question? Mm. Yeah. I don't know where I was going with that. That's no, what, that's that's what, what I felt. I think, I, think you, I think you got there. Okay. That was, yeah, that was, that was a really good thing. And I also want to say something. I, I know I just used the language of no homo mm -hmm. or saying if you're a homo, be happy. Like, that's not yet language I use. Mm -hmm. um, and I also want to invite black folk to not be afraid of using language just different than what they've heard before, mm -hmm. right? Because people are like, well, well, what is that? I don't understand that. Well, you say you're a cis and you say that this person is queer and this person is trans and this is this and this is that. I, I, that's just too much. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's too much. We have evolved as a race in this mm -hmm. country and we have been called many different things and mm -hmm. we figured out how to claim those things and we also figured out how to let people know we were not satisfied by what we were being called. Mm -hmm. And so if someone has said to me in terms of an identifier that they would prefer I use XYZ language the same way I would prefer people to call me Omi and not Amy or, or Umi, people who make the effort 
I'm like, thank you, because mm-hmm. Omi has a meaning, mm-hmm. and our identities have make meaning for us. And so, mm-hmm. if someone's saying to you, "I would prefer to be called this," it's no skin off your back to actually call what a, that person what they want to be called. The best thing I saw was just like people can call car she, but can't call trans women she. Listen, <laughs> <laughs> but your but your Mustang and is an, your girl, an inanimate right? object. Right. right. It's right. like you want the eight the eight pack of Crayola crayons. You don't want all that chartreuse and turquoise. No, you don't want that. You don't want that pewter, per- persimmon. You don't want you don't want any of those colors. Yes. I just want blue and red. That's right. Oh, blue primary and red. Co- primary colors. Right. <laughs> Thank you so much, Omi. You're welcome for joining us. Mike already asked, yeah, what do you what do you want to leave folks? But also just in terms of going out into the world, this is this is a heavy episode. You know, we talked about some some very difficult things. So in terms of just you know getting some sort of recharge and some sort of direction. What do you want to leave folks with? Mm. You know, there are two words I've been toying with recently. One is Mm -hmm. ecstasy and one is exquisite as it relates Mm -hmm. to care. And so ecstasy in terms of like the etymology of the word, like this ecstatic experience that we get to have in all aspects of our life that really connects us to what people would say is the divine, um, if you believe in something like that, or if you don't, just really um, connects you to like really, really, really amazing energy that's healthy and loving and full of light. Mm -hmm. And I would really like to leave this conversation still thinking about like how I can experience ecstasy in my daily life Mm -hmm. and also how I can receive and give exquisite care. Like that's, that's, kind of where I'm at right now and I'm, I, I think that tends to translate to some unlearning um, and some healthier ways of being in the world and also me being gentle with myself and other people who are in who am I who I'm curating right I consistently curate as tribe yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Micah I'm just really grateful for you coming and talking to us Omi. thank you nice. I think I want to leave folks with growth is not exactly comfortable when a seed has to grow it has to break out Mm -hmm. this can't be like a a comfortable process and so i guess i would encourage folks that just because you don't know something doesn't mean you can't learn something it doesn't mean you can't you know you can't adjust and you can't change that's right and nothing's wrong with change like that's it's not a bad thing I think it's a bad thing to not change when you know better, but it's not a bad thing to change. And so I guess I would want to leave people with embrace change. Thank you all for tuning in to this special episode of the Black Future Manifesto. Thank you to Black Space Durham out of Durham, North Carolina for letting us record in the space. Thank you to Mr. Grooveology, producer of the soundtrack to the show. Much, much, much love to Omishade Bernie Scott for being our guest on this installment of the Black Future Manifesto. This episode was made possible by support from Frontline Solutions, a Black-owned consulting firm that helps organizations working on the front lines of change to define goals, execute plans, and evaluate its impact. If you like this episode, let us know on social media. Tag us at Black Future Pod on Twitter and Instagram. 
For a deeper delve into other people, organizations, and topics highlighted in this episode, go to our website, blackfuturepod.com, and look for the episode's footnotes. If you know of any organizations that you think should be featured on the Black Future Manifesto, let us know at info at blackfuturepod.com. Remember to share, subscribe, and review us. Until the next chapter, I'm your host, Mariah M., signing off.